today. Killing Missing Hidden goes back to the well with, that's right, you know it, you love it, you yearn for it, another Missing 411 episode. This time in the flavor of Canadian bacon, just to shake things up. So let's let's skip the intro and get right to it, folks. Let's go. Away! Killing, missing, hidden. The podcast about bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome into another episode of Killing, Missing, Hidden, your favorite podcast in the entire world. The thing that gives your life meaning. And I hope that's not true. We are back again with another fantastic Missing 411 episode. Whenever I'm out of ideas, this is where I can always go, and it's where y'all love me to go based on the downloads we've gotten in the previous episodes. I hope you find this one just as enjoyable. Before we move on, I should introduce myself in case this is your first time listening. You're in for a treat, I must say. My name is Brad, your old buddy, former criminal defense attorney who generally uses that knowledge to analyze and explore various criminal law cases, but not today. Oh, no. We're just getting into the weird, the wild, the wonderful Missing 411. Now, if you've never heard of this phenomenon, shame on you. You should go do some research on it. I've covered it in the previous episodes. You can just listen to those to get caught up on it. But essentially, Missing 411 is a phenomenon that's been made popular by David Politis who is a former police officer turned author. And basically he discovered or is theorizing, hypothesizing, I don't know what the right word is. I'm just a dumb old lawyer. That we can see a lot of missing persons cases in and around national parks and other similarly situated plots of land that really defy explanation. You will have kids that will travel an insane number of miles before being found. You'll have, say, you know, expert skiers who get lost on a simple ski trail and then are never found. Or you have people who fall at one end of the spectrum or the other being, you know, they have something remarkable about them. Super high intelligence, super athletic or handicapped in some way, not familiar with the area. Something that puts them at the extreme. It wouldn't be your average hiker out there. There's something unique about this person, and they end up going missing. And if they are found dead, they are found dead under circumstances that police, medical examiners, and coroners can't really explain. They're often found dead in places that have been searched multiple times by search and rescue professionals. If they're found alive, generally they can't explain how they got to where they were. Particularly with kids. Kids seem to survive these encounters more than adults. And there's always an unusual number of descriptions given by children, such as being taken care of by a family of bears. Or there's a famous story about one kid who claimed that his grandmother, who was really a robot, was taking care of him. It's very, very strange stuff. And I hope you enjoy this one. Now, I traditionally have the rule of we reverse mullet things, right? We do the fun stuff up front, we get to the episode, and then we cover business in the back. I'm going to change that up a little today just to make one important announcement that I want everybody to hear. We are going to change the format of the show slightly. Not dramatically, but just slightly. Uh, Basically, my wife and kids who I adore have kind of said that, you know, Maybe my time spent on the podcast is getting a little out of hand. So we're going to see less and less two-hour episodes from me. We're going to try to get back closer to 30-minute episodes. Just an effort for me to spend time with family because by law, I have to love them. So I hope that doesn't upset too many people. It doesn't mean we won't be digging deep into episodes. We'll just have to break those up into multi-parts. And we still will have the occasional longer episode. I'm just trying to make sure I have more free time to spend with my family. Because I'm a good guy like that. This episode is also going to be a little unique in that it's totally unscripted. For only the second time in KMH history, I'm flying by the seat of my pants. I usually have nice, neat, formatted notes that I can rely on. Not today. So if it sounds really disjointed and like crap, that's why. Exactly. 
So you could see Brad kind of in a raw form for better or for worse. All right. Uh, not not a fan of rambling. So we're just going to jump straight in to the special Missing 411 Canadian Bacon Edition by starting with a story from Canada. Where else? We are going to start off our set of stories today out of the glorious Calgary, Alberta, Canada. If I could do a Lance Storm impression, I would say that just as he used to. He was a wrestler back in the day when I was living in the dorm and we watched wrestling. And this story involves a little girl named Helen Bogan. She was approximately two and a half years old when the incident occurred in August of 1950. It was around 10 a.m. And several of her her siblings and her cousins and whatnot had all gathered at their grandparents' home, and they were going to go on a horse ride. But Helen's mom said, no, no, honey, you're too little. You need to stay here where I can watch you. The kids rode off, leaving Helen alone in the garden, but did they? Because Helen disappeared kind of instantly. Mr. and Mrs. Bogan searched the yard and the surrounding farmland and oddly found her nightgown near one of the gates on their property. So it was at this point they kind of panicked and called neighbors. And because it was the 50s, the neighbors called other neighbors and everybody rallied together and didn't complain because the Bogans had one too many yard gnomes or anything stupid like that. And 150 people showed up at the Bogan farm, and they were all yelling and searching for Helen. Now, the Bogans had a pretty good-sized farm, and it was all encased in a fence. So the initial thinking was, well, this two-and-a-half-year-old little girl couldn't have gotten far. Let's check everywhere inside the fence zone first. So they're walking around, they're yelling, and this goes on for 24 hours nonstop and never found any trace of her other than that nightgown at the beginning. As night descended upon the land, they started lighting bonfires and things like that in the hopes that she would see them and start making her way towards those out of either curiosity or knowing that fire means warmth. Because I mean, it's, it's August, it's not super chilly, but you know, you've now got a naked kid out in the woods. How comfortable is she really going to be? Some neighbors had some bloodhounds that they used to try to help pick up her scent. They couldn't find anything. Uh, eventually, authorities got involved, and they were able to summon two private planes to kind of do some sky reconnaissance over the farm and the surrounding areas. Nothing was found. Basically, in those first 24 hours, you had over 450 people respond in some way, shape, or form to help the Bogans look for their little girl. When we reached the 30-hour mark after little Helen had vanished, there was an abandoned farm that was found. And it was really only found because some of the people who were searching got caught in this massive, nasty thunderstorm, and they saw it, and they took shelter. While they're there, it's empty, it's abandoned, it's leaky, it's kind of ugly. So they just wait out the storm. The storm finally subsides, and they go back on their search. Well, for some reason, and not even our hero can say why, but a Miss Tanish decided to search the farmhouse again. There was no reason to. She had only been gone an hour from when they were caught in the thunderstorm. But she thought she'd check it out again. And she walks in and she finds little Helen naked and splashing around in this old tub full of dirty water. It collected a bunch of the storm water that had dripped in. And she was just having a good old time, just playing in water as kids often do. When Miss Bogan finally got her child back. She was, of course, over the moon, as most of us would be if we lost our child. And she found, you know, she examined her up and down as a mom would do and found that, you know, she had some scratches on her body. She was pretty hungry and was a little weak, you know, but otherwise she was fine. 
the people who are out searching were really shocked that they found Helen alive at all, period. Because, again, as I mentioned, it's August. If you live in the United States, August means horrible heat. If you live in the southern United States like me, you also mix in terrible humidity and you just want to die thinking about it. But here, because of the rain and because of being, you know, up north in the happy land of Canada, the overnight temperatures were about 40 degrees. So if you're wet and naked and wandering around in the woods and it's 40 degrees, that's tough. Especially when you've got no comforts whatsoever. Um, you know, they noted too that Helen was kind of plagued by insight insect bites from her little journey out in the woods. They, of course, took her to the hospital and she was totally fine. You know, mama was right. She didn't have any, any signs of hypothermia or other negative conditions from being outside for so long. When Helen's mom and dad talked to her after the hospital examination and said, you know, honey, where were you? What happened? Can you tell us what went on? She couldn't really explain much, again, two and a half years old. But the one thing she was kind of consistent about was she had spent the night on top of a hill resting and listening. And that could never be clarified more than that. According to her, again, unreliable source because she's two, but this is what she remembers. This is what she says. Despite being on this hilltop and despite being in an area where searchers would have been up and down and left and right and within spitting distance the whole time she was up there, she claimed to have never saw another human until she was found by Miss Tanish in the barn and was basically just in perfect health. Now, again, for those of you that have listened to our Missing 411 episodes before and are familiar with the phenomenon, there's several things that kind of stand out in Helen's case that that do make it fall into this category of, of missing persons cases. Again, bloodhounds are there. They can't catch a scent. Shortly after Helen goes missing, we have this horrible thunderstorm strike the area. Not a single searcher ever found a footprint of this little girl even after the rain stopped and you had mud and all that stuff that she could, she would have had to walk through, particularly around the barn where she was found. Because again, remember, there's volunteers in there hiding out from the storm. They leave. One of them comes back an hour later and finds little Helen. Well, this barn out in the middle of the woods, there's plenty of mud. There should have been footprints of hers leading to the barn in some shape or fashion. But it's never found. And, you know, again, it's just kind of surprising that despite being out in the elements naked, the worst thing that happened to her is she was kind of feasted on by some insects. You would expect a child that small to have some signs of hypothermia or some signs of exhaustion. but. It didn't happen. It's also worth noting that the farm is apparently covered with hundreds of bodies of water. I mean, obviously not great lake size, but small little lakes and streams and things like that. And somehow this little girl managed falling to into one of those and suffering some sort of horrible fate. She just, again, miraculously stumbled around until she found this barn where she was rescued. So next we're going to British Columbia, specifically a little spot of land known as Pitt Lake. So this one kind of has a weird story behind it, according to Mr. Politis, and we're going to get into that. Our, our, our missing person is a fellow by the name of Leo Gaspard. He was 60 years old at the time of his disappearance. And the story takes place back in July of 1951. So in Pitt Lake, British Columbia, there is a Pitt River that kind of creates Pitt Lake. I know you're shocked. The naming conventions of, of the Great North are, are wild. This place is roughly 45 northeast, 45, 45 miles northeast of Vancouver. 
it's a little isolated, a little rugged, and our story really begins back in the 1890s. There was uh, a Native American or first person, I don't know the proper term anymore, and I'm not trying to be offensive, um, who, by the name of Slum Slumac, I believe, Slumac. He was a very private person. He didn't really socialize with anyone. He just kind of lived his life. You stay on your side of the street. I'll stay on my side of the street. But he was kind of well-known because the dude knew how to find gold. Literally, when he would show up in the closest town, he would bring with them, you know, two or three bags of gold. And if for whatever reason he was trying to purchase something that was more expensive than what he had brought with him, he'd say, okay, hang on, I'll be right back. And, you know, by about 48 hours later, he'd show up with another couple bags of gold. And this wasn't just, you know, little tiny acorn sized pieces, or actually that would be pretty good size, wouldn't it? I mean, I would like an acorn sized piece of gold. He, he would, I mean, his nuggets were as big as walnuts. So he, had access to a very lucrative gold mine. Now, unfortunately, Mr. Slumack wasn't really a model ideal person. He kept to himself because it seems like he kind of hated the world. Maybe I'm being unfair, but regardless, he ended up being hung in, in 1891. There's lots of different stories about why it happened. One stated that you know, he just kind of murdered a person in town and was instantly arrested. But it can get a lot more elaborate from there. I think the most elaborate version that's listed here is whenever he would go to his gold mine, he was always bring along a woman with him to help feed, feed him, cook for him, just kind of generally assist him. And no woman ever made this trip twice because they didn't live long enough to make it twice. And eventually the people kind of put two and two together and, and took care of them. It, a part of this story is that the prosecutor allegedly said, look, if you tell us where your mine is, we'll give you life in prison rather than killing you. And he refused, so he hung. And so this became kind of a little bit of a local legend. The Lost Creek Mine is what it was known as. And nobody ever found it. And there's lots of Interesting stories that go along with it from people who are searching for it. For instance, there's a newspaper article back in 1943 from some folks who were searching the area, and they saw strange lights in the sky all around the Pit Lake Mountains, and they would see these apparitions of supposedly deceased Native Americans. Some even claim that or not some, one even claimed that he was approached by 11 murdered women who all claimed they were victims of uh, Mr. Slumack, and then they disappeared. So lots of mystery, lots of paranormal stuff surrounding this area. But of course, there's gold, and people like gold, so they want to go find gold. That's where Leo Gaspard enters the picture. He goes to uh, a local area that offers helicopter rides for outdoorsmen. And he contracts them to take him to the headwaters of the Pitt River and drop him off there so he can go look for this mine. He also asks that they come back in four months and bring with them 400 pounds of food. Now, the manager of this air service was a fellow named Carl Agar, and he basically said, you know, we have people, or we had people ask us to take us, take them up to the area of Pit Lake all the time, and it's so rugged and it's so dangerous, we always turned them down. And he said, in fact, in his career, he said maybe two people he ever took up there, and one of them was Gaspard. But, you know, we, was, we were talking a dozen or so people would ask every year to be dropped off up there and would be turned away. Agar said that, you know, it was just, it, you had to know what you were doing to survive there. And he wasn't going to put anybody's life at risk. But Gaspard, 
looked like he knew what he was doing. He talked the talk. He walked the walk. He had lots of stories. His reputation was that of a very experienced and very talented outdoorsman. So a guard felt like this dude could survive up there. So, yeah, I'm happy to do it. So he's dropped off at the headwaters of this pit river. While he's hiking north into the woods, he's spotted by two other prospectors. And that's the last time Leo's ever seen. In October, two Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers went up into the same area to try to search for some evidence of where Leo was, if something happened to him. But the area it had been snowed in pretty nastily. And while the officers were searching, it kind of rained nonstop. These two fellows spent two weeks in this rugged wilderness and could not find any information about where Leo had even set up camp, much less where he was, where his body was, or where this mine was. And apparently, according to Mr. Politis's research, Leo is the 21st victim who lost their life in the pursuit of this Lost Creek mine. His body's never been found. Again, this is an area that is just awfully, awfully rugged. Uh, there are several First Nations stories about this particular area. It is a place that nature had reserved just for First Nations people. The white man's not supposed to go there, to put it kind of bluntly and crudely. Now, another interesting facet of this case is when relatives went to Leo's house to kind of take care of his belongings and all that, once they were certain he was no longer with us, he had left a letter. And the letter in part stated, by the time you're reading this note, I will have passed on. So he was expecting to die. Now that raises the question of, is this really a missing 411 case? Or did Leo just use this as an opportunity to check out from life? You know, he loved being in the outdoors. So why not go to this area that's very rugged, very isolated. You've got lots of mountains, the streams, the lake. It's supposed to be a beautiful area. If you're going to die, why not die someplace you want to be? But it's included in David Politis's work because of those First Nations stories about this being kind of a cursed place for white men and there being just flatly no evidence whatsoever from somebody who was experienced and smart enough that it should have been easy to find evidence. But nope, Leo's gone, and he's never been found. Next up, we're going to hop on over to Nova Scotia, specifically Little River Harbor in Nova Scotia. We're dialing in our time machine for January of 1955 as we look for little Howard Newell, a six-year-old boy who goes missing. So this is his story. He was out with his family cutting wood this January afternoon with his uncle, his father, you know, all, all the men's swords, because, of course, you know, women can't chop wood. That's not women's work, right? That's what the 50s have taught us. When they finished up, Howard, you know, being six years old, was still full of an incredible amount of energy and, you know, kind of said he was going to race back to the house and he knew a shortcut. Nobody could beat him. All that stuff you typically hear from little boys. So he dashes along and nobody really thinks anything of it. Uh, his cousins were the last to see him because they were kind of at the vanguard of this group. And he was running through the snow, putting on his coat when he disappeared behind some trees and then a little a little hill that went down. When the family got back to the home, they asked where Howard was and none of the women folk there had seen him. And. Of course, I'm I'm using all these misogynistic terms and just 
it was actually all the, the the mothers, the sisters, the female cousins, the aunts. They were the first ones to dash out in the snow to search for Howard. And they, I mean, it was reading their story is kind of like what you would expect to see from a professional search and rescue crew. They broke up into pairs. They went in different directions, all of which Howard could have come from. As I said, there's snow on the ground, so they're looking for tracks. They're looking for any evidence of where he was or where he might be. But about an hour into the search, all of a sudden it starts to snow. And not like little baby snowflakes. These snowflakes were huge. And they quickly covered the entire area with the fresh powdering of snow. And of course, filled in any tracks that could have been left. Now, the local authorities in Nova Scotia kind of threw every resource they had into the effort to find Howard Newell once they were alerted that he was missing. I mean, literally, you had folks from the Canadian Army Reserves, recruits that were training for the Canadian Navy. You had private and public helicopters come on in to search from overhead. All the firefighters in the area rushed to join in. All the local Royal Canadian Mounted Police. A local Bible college sent its staff and students to help. And several of the high schools had their students come search because the snow had gotten so bad, they had to shut down anyway because it was going to become a hazard for them to stay there. So essentially, you end up having over a thousand people looking for this boy within hours of him going missing. And they're organized very well, very efficiently. Large groups of them are sent out into the woods and they're told, look, Basically, you're walking hand in hand, shoulder to shoulder, okay? Just walk in a straight line. That way we can be sure that we cover every little slice of ground. Howard's father, he, he was very worried about all the water that surrounded the area they were in. So he made it his mission to go straight to every water source that he knew of. But every single one of them was frozen. And not lightly frozen, like very, very thick, several inches deep of ice. It was enough that he could walk over it without worrying about it cracking. So you knew that little six-year-old Harold had no issue. Um, Harold's father's employers, wait, wait, I'm sorry. Harold's the dad, Howard's the kid. <laughs> so Harold's employer, uh, Kenny Construction, when the owner heard about what had happened, he actually shut down the company for a few days so the employees could go out there and search for Howard. Can you imagine a business doing that these days? There were lots of rumors that spread pretty quickly about what happened to the boy because he wasn't found immediately. And one of the biggest claims was that a truck had hit the poor boy and the driver panicked, took his body, and then disposed of it in some fashion. The most popular tale was he burned it. Now, the police kind of reached the conclusion that there was no validity to this, tr to this truck story. He hadn't been hit by anyone. He hadn't been carried away. And they ultimately concluded that little Howard must have drowned. But there was no evidence supporting this claim. And it's odd because the police were very insistent. They wouldn't negotiate. You know, this wasn't something they were going to discuss. This is what had happened. There's no debate here. He drowned. Okay. That was the official stance. Yet, several years later, in 1988, the police reopened this case and treated it as if it was a cold case murder. They would never explain how or why they thought this. But they did another investigation and, again, couldn't reach any conclusion. Now, Howard was kind of a unique kid. He was known for being very smart. He went to, he went to school in this old-style two-room schoolhouse, you know. But he 
was roughly in the first grade, but he would do his older brother's homework for him. His his older brother was in, I guess, roughly what we'd call the third grade. And his brother would say years later in an interview that, you know, I couldn't tell what we were supposed to do for my homework, but Howard always knew how to figure it out at the age of six. He was also devoutly religious for his age. In fact, one Christmas, the only thing he asked for was a picture of Jesus and Mary together that he could hang above his bed. So they search ultimately for 11 straight days and never find any trace of Howard. After the snows had thawed and all that in May, they did another big search just to see if they had missed anything. God forbid if there was a body floating in some of the waterways or anything like that. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. And it's one thing Mr. Politis points out and kind of harps on is Everybody who talked about Howard talked about what a smart kid he was. And that was always the first kind of description of him out of their mouth. So the people who knew him have a very hard time believing that he would get into the water by choice. I mean, of course, he could be running over an area he thinks is frozen and it cracks and it falls in. But again, if we believe his father, every bit of water that he tested was frozen well enough that, you know, a grown man who does construction for a living could walk across it without any concern. So six-year-old little boy, shoot, he could do jumping jacks across that thing and be fine, right? None of the family believes that Howard fell in the water, but they don't really know what happened to him. That They can't offer an explanation, and no one really else can either. Now, some folks want to say, well, he must have been snapped up by an animal, but apparently this time of year, there's just no predators because it's so cold that there's no prey out. And so they go to slightly warmer climates to do their hunting rather than this area. If you think that somebody just came along and kidnapped him, we're talking about a very, very rural and isolated part of Canada. So for someone who wants to kidnap a kid, walking blindly out into the woods and stumbling around and happening upon Howard seems virtually impossible. But what else do you say happened here? I mean, if you accept the fact that he wasn't eaten by an animal, if you accept the fact that there's not, he wasn't randomly picked up by somebody. If you accept the fact that the water was frozen very thickly, then where is he? There were, nobody could find his tracks, you know? And again, Mother Nature covered him up within an hour of their search beginning. You have literally a thousand people walking shoulder to shoulder or searching the entire path between his home and where they were cutting down firewood and find no evidence of this child being there. They come back in May after the snow's gone to see if they can find anything. I mean, even a dropped mitten, nothing. It's just another classic missing 411 disappearance. And our last story for today, I know, I know, settle down, all good things come to an end. But we're heading to Saskatchewan a place I only know exists because of the Canadian Football League and only because they're known as the Rough Riders and I have the mind of a child and that makes me giggle. Specifically, we are going to Pelly, Saskatchewan, Canada back in 1937, May of 37 to be precise. Now, this is a region that is known to be more swamp than land. Lots of water, Lots of swampland, but there is also lots of really good farming land. So you have this area that is rather popular for people who want to farm because the soil is so good. Plus, 
you know, even these days, it's kind of a mecca for fishermen and hunters. But we're not talking about any of that. This is, you know, almost 100 years ago. And this story is just very unique because it involves two missing children. They were best friends, and their names were Hazel Scarpa and Ludvina Mackieson. That's probably close to right. Hazel was 11 when she disappeared. Ludvina was 10. So the two were playing together when Luida's, Ludvina's father had some cattle that escaped. So the girls decided to help out to go looking for the missing cattle. The dad specifically pointed them in direction of these fields to go search because he knew it was the safest area for two little girls to go search in while he and some of the farm hands would go search the more dangerous areas. So they go off into this field, basically, and just disappeared. They got lost. Ludvino's father, you know, got upset. He called upon the local residents of Pelly for help. The police responded in force, apparently. And searchers were just emphatic that they were going to fight them. So they searched for two days and they cover kind of a diameter of about seven miles going around the farmland. In that time, searchers did find a pair of small footprints that they thought may belong to one of the girls, but of course they weren't sure. All of this time, from basically hours after the girls go missing till these footprints are found two days later, it's just raining and raining and raining. And oftentimes it's sheets of rain. So all the rescuers are being hampered by the weather conditions pretty seriously. Now, according to Mr. Politis's research, a child in the range of 10 to 12 years of age, if traveling kind of on flat grassland, should be found within 6.2 miles of the area that he or she went missing. 95% of the time, they're found within that range. Well, four days after the girls go missing, Ludvina was found by what the Calgary newspapers described as a roving band of Indians. She was over 20 miles away from home. So this means this 10-year-old girl had to cover 20 miles of swampland, rocky land, woods, all that, without and passing through many farms and ranches, she would have to go across several roadways, all without being detected. And all in what's considered beyond the ability of a 10-year-old to accomplish. Now, when she was found, of course, she's questioned immediately and kind of frantically about, you know, where's Hazel? We got to find Hazel. And Ludvina said that they were out, they were searching for the cattle, but they kind of got in an argument about the best way to go about their search, as 10 and 11-year-olds are wont to do, regardless of gender. And so they decided to separate. They did it that day, the, the day they went searching. Uh, they separated after getting in this little argument. And that was the last time Ludvina had seen her friends. So the police go back to the area where Ludvina said that they separated and searched just aggressively in the hopes they could find anything indicating what had happened to Hazel. Well, later that same day, a fellow by the name of Joe Malonowicz was driving a wagon load of food from Pelly up to kind of the makeshift headquarters of the search, search team when he heard a noise. He described it as this shrill cry full of sadness and hopelessness. And so he stopped his wagon and decided to go take a look at what on earth was making this noise. 
And he goes through the bushes, he goes through the trees, he goes up a little hill and down, and he could see this, you know, what the what was known as the Swan River. And in the middle of where he was, he could see in the center of the river this small island that he had never noticed before. Not that I have any information about how often he hiked in these areas. But on this island, he sees Hazel. And it's totally surrounded by water. It is, from the sound of things, it is like the island you would draw in art class in elementary school, where it's just a hump of dirt with one tree coming out of it. This, this was a fir tree rather than a palm tree, but that's where she was sitting. So he manages to swim over there, get her, bring her back to his wagon and take her to the headquarters. Everybody celebrates. They're so happy that she's found, of course. And apparently when she was questioned about what happened, she couldn't really give an answer for how she got in the silence. She certainly doesn't remember swimming or any otherwise getting wet during her travels, although she would be soaked in the subsequent rainstorm. And she noted that she kept seeing bears. She counted as many as 12 bears would come along the path. And she would see them, and they would see her, but they wouldn't growl, they wouldn't react, they'd just keep on passing by. She claimed she stayed alive by drinking the river water and there was a tree, or I'm sorry, a bush that had berries growing on it, and that's what she ate. Now, that's kind of a wild story. You wouldn't really write a story like that and expect people to believe you. You have one girl who travels 20, yard, 20 miles through, you know, very hostile terrain, very swampy terrain, something that would be difficult to walk through even without it pouring down rain on top of you. Then you have another girl who's stuck on the middle of an island and she can't tell you how she got there. If you'll remember from some of our old episodes, water plays a big role, apparently, in where missing people are found, either dead or alive. And so we here we have Hazel surrounded by water, right? We also hear a lot of stories from kids about bears. I think I mentioned that at the top of the show. And here we have Hazel claiming to see as many as a dozen bears at a time. And they just kind of keep trotting on. You know, they don't find her interesting. They don't see her as prey. They just keep living their life, which I think from what little I know about bears, I think they're the sort that, you know, they keep to their own business. They're only going to be an issue for you if you provoke them or if you happen to stumble upon a mama who wants to protect your cubs, you know. But again, it's just another set of weird circumstances that can't really be explained based on the facts that we have before us. There's certainly not much I can offer in the way of legal analysis or that would be worth anything, at least, uh, on these sorts of cases. Missing 411 cases are just fun, creepy stories that generally there's, when we do these episodes, most folks find there's at least one that kind of boggles their mind. And it's different for everyone. All of these are very unusual. I intentionally selected older ones because I tend to do more modern ones. But as you can see, this is a phenomenon, if you believe Mr. Politis's theory, that has been going back. I mean, he has cases in the 1800s where this was occurring. Um, I just happened to be the ones I picked out were from the 50s and then the one from the, the 30s. And they're all so strange. And it's remarkable how similar the stories are when you start comparing them. Now, Mr. Politis has been under a lot of heat recently. and probably for good reason, because as he's becoming more and more popular or well-known, he's kind of being accused of stretching the his missing 411 phenomenon to include cases that probably don't fall into it. And I found some that I've looked at that I would, I would come up with another explanation for how the, the case went down. I mean, with Leo or, or, I think that was our second story today. 
He's six years old. He leaves a good night, goodbye note for his family. I got to call that one. Uh, to me, that's not a missing 411 case. I, I think there's a good chance of that being a suicide of some sort. I don't know why you would leave that letter under those circumstances if you were literally just going to search for this lost gold mine. But maybe he realized what a treacherous adventure it was, and that was kind of, a, you know, like the, the, the final message to his family before he goes off to war, like you see in so many movies, right? Um, it, it, you, you could take that approach, I guess. I, you know, Occam's Razor probably says he died from, either at his own hands or just from how rough an area he was in. The kids' cases are always tougher because, I mean, how do you have a two-and-a-half-year-old survive? It's only 30 hours, of course. We can all go 30 hours without water or food, but when she's found, she's happy. She's playing. And again, she was considered a little weak and hungry and whatnot, but, I mean, being naked in 40-degree weather while it's raining, no, nobody's going to be in a good mood after that. Here that little girl was. If you enjoy these stories, we've covered a mess of them. Mr. Politis sells lots of books on these. If you're interested in buying them, don't go through eBay or Amazon because he's very protective of his work and he only sells his books through his own website, which is Can Am Missing, I believe. Regardless, just look for David Politis, Missing 411, and you'll find the website. But he sells them all through there. If you look on Amazon, these books are like 80 or 90 bucks. If you go straight to Mr. Politis' website, they're like 20 or 30 bucks. So they're much cheaper. The stories today came from um, his book, Missing 411, The Devils in the Details. That was our only source for this episode. I'll still put a, a show note link in case you want to look into buying it yourself. Uh, interesting book. It's all his books are roughly the same stories, but again, as the more recent books he's published are branching out a little bit further. And so some people are being a little critical of that, but um, yeah, I own two of his books. I've enjoyed both of them. They present some pretty interesting cases. I think you get a little bit more mileage out of um, his first two or three books. But that's just my opinion. You know, if there's one that calls for you, go ahead and order it. It won't hurt you. You never go wrong buying a book, right? All right. Well, uh, my plan was to cover 30 minutes, and we've exceeded that by a fair amount. So, huzzah. Uh, I was able to record and get this down and not have to do anything that makes me feel like I'm, you know, being a bad husband or a bad father. So, win-win. Cue. All right, uh, as always, know that we appreciate you. Know that we love you. You're our favorite people in the world. The only reason I do this podcast, you know, there's, did you notice there's no ads in this, right? Yeah. I'm not begging you to join a Patreon. I did play with that idea for a little bit, but no. This is all free. This is a labor of love, and I do it because of y'all. Uh, y'all are always so sweet in your words to me and all that. So I really appreciate it. If you don't follow us on any social media, you may want to. We post a lot of stupid, silly things on Instagram, or you can find us at kmh.podcast. We play a little on Twitter, the name KMH Podcast. I would really encourage you to join our Facebook group because that's who helped me make the decision on how to shape the show going forward. We've got about 200 members there. You can find us. I think it's facebook.com slash killing, missing, hidden spelled out to join our private group. You have to answer three questions. They are not difficult. You can do it. You just got to name your favorite episode. You have to give me the name of what we call our jokes at the end of the episode, which are palate cleansers. And then you just have to agree that these questions are, you have to answer them if you want to join the group. Anyone can pass this test. 
So if for some reason you've tried to join and been rejected, it probably means you forgot to answer the questions. I try to send a note along, but I'm not always successful at that. And if you join the group, then you kind of help shape the future of the podcast. So you want to get in there, you want some voting power. There you go. It exists. You just have to make the effort to join. All right. Now, speaking of palate cleansers, my son, Mr. Eli, is in charge of selecting our joke each and every week. And of course, he loves to make it in line with whatever our theme is. So he's picked one about Canada. Now, he showed me some of the jokes that he found about Canada, and most of them were just awful. So I'm glad he picked this one because... I mean, frankly, it's not the best we've ever offered, but uh, it could be so, so, so much worse. So here we go. Why do so many Canadians have a problem with hard water? Why do so many Canadians have an issue with hard water? Because the water in Canada is mostly frozen. I told you, I warned you it wasn't going to be great, but apparently he was kind of frustrated and that was the best we could come up with. All right, uh, I've went over our social media stuff. Join us there. We rock. You'll love it. I promise it will improve your day, brighten your smile, all that good stuff. If you could and you haven't, we would love a review. Those five stars just dazzle us beyond delight. And again, you know, we're, we're, we're doing this for free. You can, you can take a minute to leave us a nice review, right? Now, if you've got something that you don't like that we're doing, you can email me, you can join the Facebook group, we can talk about it. Our review is not really the best place to have any dialogue about whatever we could improve. So that's why, you know, if you love us, leave us five stars, leave us a nice little review, especially in Apple Podcasts, but, you know, Spotify, Good Pods, wherever you listen, we're happy to take the review. So, um... Again, I'm unscripted today, so I don't really know how to close this one out. I don't have anything clever lined up. I don't I don't really know where to go. So I could just keep babbling for a while until we reach the one-hour mark. But uh, instead, I'll just say thank you for joining us. I hope you all have just a wonderful week filled with lots of happiness. Lots of, you know, doggy bellies to rub or kitty bellies to rub, whichever your preference is. And uh, we'll try to see you next week with a story of, uh, I think I know what we're going to be talking about if I can pull it off. It's, it's going to be an interesting little missing person slash unsolved murder. So look forward to that. All right. Love you, kids. Thanks for joining us right out. You survived another episode of Killing Missing Hidden, the podcast about bad things. Join us next time for another true and thrilling story.